Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 533 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 14th of February 2021 as I record this. In today's show I'm talking to Alison Jones about the changes in publishing during the pandemic and how to write a non-fiction proposal and this is relevant if you want to pitch traditional publishers or agents but it's also a good idea if you're going indie with your book. If you spend the time up front working out all the bits of a proposal it can help you be better positioned for success. So that is coming up in the interview segment. In publishing news, there's a breakdown of how audiobook authors and narrators are paid by Audible ACX, we think. (laughs) Uh, Colleen Cross has posted on the Alliance of Independent Authors blog, going into detail on the various categories on the royalty statement report and how the percentages look like they are calculated. So uh, an investigative piece there on royalties, a really interesting report. And of course, hash AudibleGate continues. So in book marketing news, we've been hearing about this for a while now, but Facebook sent an email this week. Apple has announced changes that will adversely affect the way our ad systems work and may impact your ability to reach people with personalised ads. These changes are expected to be introduced with an update to iOS 14 in early 2021. This disruption may significantly affect advertisers using Pixel as well as iOS 14 app developers and publishers. So this is essentially people having to opt in to to get ads and this is possibly the first of what will be a lot of changes. Uh, I mean, the ad blockers are nothing new in that sense, but what I think, I don't want people to be worried about this, you know, I mean, I guess you will be worried if this is your only form of advertising, but I really hope it's not for all of us, you know, it's not news that you should be building an email list of readers so you can reach them. And also don't think that people don't want ads. It's a terrible double negative, but people do opt into email lists from things like BookBub or Free Booksy or Bargain Booksy. People want to get deals on books. People want to hear about books, but perhaps they don't necessarily just want it through Facebook. So I'm I'm not particularly worried about this. I do have Facebook ads running for fiction and nonfiction, but um, we'll see what happens. But what I think is that we, as ever, we adapt to the changing market and we use the tools we can when we can, and then we use other things. But the most important thing, the most important baseline is building our own email lists and controlling the way we can reach readers. So uh, in other intellectual property news, not quite publishing, but I think this is interesting uh, in terms of contracts. Taylor Swift is about to start releasing new versions of her first six albums after the master recordings were sold by her former record label to uh, a guy called Scooter Braun, who uh, he and uh, Taylor Swift have difficult dealings, that's for sure. Swift said, the deal stripped me of my life's work. It pains me very deeply to remain separated from the music I spent over a decade creating. 
But it seems like, you know, she's essentially gone back, re-recorded the old music, which she said uh, have proven to be both exciting and creatively fulfilling and promises plenty of surprises. So this is really interesting because the copyright that remains with these masters is essentially what was sold. And as she said, that's her over a decade of her work. Now, this is not something that authors would be able to do. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, well, what if you've licensed your rights to a publisher for the life of copyright? You can't get the rights back. And you thought, well, I could do something like this. Well, <laughs> I think you'd have to look at your contract because some of the contracts I've seen license characters, world, series names, um, you know, series world, the, the pretty broad contract so you wouldn't be able to do what Taylor Swift has done here uh, so I think this is interesting especially off the back of oh, I should say that was reported in the Guardian links in the show notes as ever also given that Publishers Weekly reported that 2020 was a record year for book sales and 67% of print sales were backlist now that's almost a reversal of what is normally the case, which is frontless books. So new releases, debut authors make up the the market bigger market share. But um, what this article in Publishers Weekly said is that it is easier. This is a quote from Publishers Weekly: "It is easier to find backlist books online than it is to discover new titles." So. Will this shift publishers to promote more of their backlist authors, their midlist authors, the ones who have a deep backlist, as opposed to focusing so much on debuts? There is a question. Will it change behaviour given that? I mean, most of us, I, I have 30 plus books and the majority of my money every month is made up of older books. <laughs> so, yeah, it can certainly be done. Very interesting. In my personal update, How to Make a Living with Your Writing, the third edition is up for ebook pre-order in the usual places. And so far, the early readers have been very positive about it. It is much more comprehensive than the last edition. So, uh, and as I've said, I've got a lot of ideas from it. So it will be out on the 15th of March. I'm saving it another month so that I can narrate the audiobook, which I will be starting this week, and also getting the print and workbook editions done. Finishing energy, my friends, that is what is necessary. Actually, it's funny just with audiobook narration because I'm inside my booth right now and it's Sunday. And what's happened with Jonathan going back to a day job, working from home upstairs above me, and I can hear his voice when he's on the phone, especially when he gets excited. And because he's working sort of office hours from home, I now can't record during daytime hours unless we kind of organise it so our meetings uh, don't overlap. So the audiobooks, I'm having to get up super early to record, which is... <laughs> Given, given that we're in lockdown and, you know, this should be, I should be capable of managing this. But no, I actually have to get up early to record before he, in quotation marks, goes to work, which is uh, quite amusing. Well, you have to find some humour in the small things <laughs> since we're still in lockdown. Uh, OK, yes. What else? Your author business plan and my AI book are both now on Audible. That's only taken two months. <laughs> and uh, as well as Apple Books, Chirp, Play, Kobo, Audio, Scribd, Nook Audio, anywhere you want to get your audiobooks, those should now be available. And all the links for audiobooks are at thecreativepen.com forward slash audio or just search your favourite audio app. 
So while I have been catching up on admin and all that, I did have a whole day working on my short story this week, which I was thrilled about. Uh, I've I've dictated the first um, draft, but the world that it's set in is a, I say the setting, it's not a different world, it's our world, but the setting needs a lot of research to get the right language. And so I spent a whole day on research and obviously all online. I really would have loved to have done it in person, but it was not possible. So I'm not a natural short story writer. Most of my ideas are pretty epic (laughs) and tend to be book length in scope, but this one is definitely a draft. So I'm, uh, it's definitely a short rather. So I'm going to This week, I'll be going back through the draft and adding in the richness of the world so that the language is more correct. And then I'm actually going to rest it. This is one of those, uh, I think I mentioned I'm going to enter this into a short story competition. So I'm going to rest it and edit it and do all the things that I feel need to be done uh, in order to enter it. I've still got a month or two even, I think, until the deadline for the competition. So I'm I'm not speeding along on this one. We are still locked down here and uh, we have been watching, obviously, a lot of TV. I did want to mention Call My Agent on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, Call My Agent or it's Dispersant in uh, French because it is in French and it's set in Paris and it's about uh, it's about a film and TV agency and it's fantastic. And what I find and before that, we watched Lupin, which is another French uh, show. And it's so interesting, I find with subtitles, when you watch with subtitles, you remember it as if it was in English. It's very weird. Uh, I find the human brain to be incredible. But both of those are good. But Call My Agent is, uh, I mean, it's just, it is seeing behind the, the scenes of film and TV agencies. And there's lots of famous French actors uh, in it. And uh, it's just brilliant. And also it will make you want to uh, be sipping a petit café on the streets of Paris. And uh, that is what I want to be doing. <laughs> Jonathan and I are like, right, we're getting on the Eurostar if it hasn't gone bust by then. <laughs> also, I wanted to mention in my personal news, on the 12th of February, so what, a couple of days ago, 2011, so a decade ago, I celebrated the publication of Pentecost, which I later re-edited and re-released as Stone of Fire. So it's a decade of fiction and I have 11 arcane thrillers, three Brock and Daniel psychological crime thrillers, three Matt Walker dark fantasy novels plus short stories, several co-written books including Risen Gods with Jay Thorne which is set in New Zealand and I totaled my word count and I have published over a million words. So I'm really thrilled and that's not including any of my non-fiction. So I'm well over a million but that's just my fiction. So I'm I'm just, I feel quite happy about that. I was thinking about it in terms of, they they do say, they being whoever, (laughs) that once you've published over a million words, you might have a bit of a clue as to what you're doing. (laughs) So I have so many ideas for stories I want to write, so much more I want to do. But it does feel like a bit of a milestone. I was going to do something more significant, like lessons learned. But, I, you know, I still feel like I'm just starting out with my fiction. It's so funny. And I was talking to a friend the other day and I was like, oh, I really want to improve my process. And <laughs> it's like, I've been doing this a while. I have a lot to show for it. And yet I still feel like there's so much I can improve. So wherever you are on your author journey, there will always be people behind you and in front of you. And I know it's hard, but try not to compare yourself to others. Just keep your eyes in your own lane and get back to writing, which is what I'm doing uh, at the moment. 
So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Bobby says, on David Farland's episode, best, most useful and inspiring interview yet. Uh, and at the same time as Lynn commented on the episode with Sarah Painter, always a pleasure. This was probably my all-time favourite episode. <laughs> so much positivity and joy. I love the fact that um, this is why I like doing interviews because I feel like you just don't know who's going to resonate with who and there's lots of you listening and I know sometimes you'll be like yeah not that interested in that interview but sometimes you'll find a gem and that's why I like doing lots of different people and lots of different uh, angles. Bonnie sent a picture of snow lockdown 11 below zero this morning in Nebraska. And Bonnie says she replies to the mirror or the windshield when she's listening and learning from the show. So, hey, Bonnie, and uh, you can talk to the mirror. And uh, Bonnie says, my mantra for last year was just keep writing. And that's what you and David said. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what we all say. Uh, Sterling Gets Creative said on YouTube, every time I hear your voice say welcome, I smile wide and feel the wave of impending inspiration and encouragement. Thank you so much. I'm I'm thrilled that it's useful. And then I had a, a question from M about how to battle navel gazing and rumination, which is sort of not being able to transition from staring out of windows. And that I seem to me, I move from one project to the next. As one project ends, you are grasping at the next thing. You seem to move from action to action without a hitch in your stride. How do you let ideas surface but still stay so action orientated? And I was thinking about this and I know that my personality type is action driven, goal driven, and I have a bias for action. That's what they call it. But it's very interesting because my husband, Jonathan, is the opposite. And what I find is that being uh, having a bias for action is both my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. It is a brilliant character flaw. I have not put it in a book so far. <laughs> but I probably should because it is my character flaw, my character strength and my flaw because I will jump into things and I will just go full into them with all my energy and then if they don't work, I kind of crash into a wall or they fail. So I jump in the next thing, but I I rarely will spend much time considering my next action. Whereas Jonathan will wait and wait and wait and think and think and think and will spend a, I, I get very frustrated <laughs> but then when he does make a, a move it's usually very well thought out and usually works now I don't know if you can change your personality in that in that way I mean you're maybe one way or the other way but what I would say is that in terms of ideas surfacing I still remember when I was so 2006 to to 2008 so I did NaNoWriMo in 2008 or 2009 I can't remember now but essentially I never thought I would write fiction and this is a very interesting thing given that it's a decade in I did not think I would ever have any ideas for a story and what happens with the story idea muscle is that once you start training it it starts improving and improving and improving and then you get more ideas and more ideas so I feel like when you're when you don't have too many books you 
are perhaps so attached to certain ideas that you can't let all the other things come in. And if you start writing, you start trying to, maybe the faster you go, the more the ideas come. I don't know, but I certainly, the ideas come now in a way that they never did. So I hope that encourages you in a way that the more you can tap into that idea of curiosity, the more you can sort of lean into playfulness and a bit of fun and maybe a bit more lighthearted attitude towards things, then those ideas come. And then the question is, what do you do with those ideas? So anyway, a bit of a long-winded answer, but I thought this was an interesting thing to share, given that I'm at a decade and I do want I have so many more ideas I want to write in the next decade my problem is which ones to work on and how to balance everything but we all have a problem with balancing time that's for sure Right, so today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark, who I use to produce and publish my print books wide in multiple formats, paperback, large print and hardback. They are wide and available for bookstore ordering, universities, Barnes & Noble online, tens of thousands of retailers around the world. Ingram Spark is the perfect sponsor for today's show because non-fiction books sell a huge amount in print. My print revenue is around 80% of my non-fiction uh, income. If you don't have print books, you are seriously missing out. And why would you not have print books if uh, when print on demand means very little upfront cost? And since I've been with Ingram Spark, my print sales uh, have widened, obviously. But uh, and I use KDP Print with Ingram Spark. So why should you do this? So basically, um, yes people buy print books on Amazon, but bookstores, libraries, universities, schools, they all buy from online catalogues and expect a discount. And a lot of the print on demand services in different countries have essentially like a feed from Ingram where they can list those books in different countries. So if you really want your print books to be wide, then doing them together is the best way. You can also do discounts, which is essentially, if you think about how bookstores make money, you need to do discounting. You can also do bulk deals. And uh, that's really important. I mean, <laughs> obviously, we're we're not in speaking times right now, but uh, people selling books to schools and book clubs, reader groups, that kind of thing. Uh, you can also get your books listed in bookshop.org, which is which benefits independent bookstores. And you can have your books there through Ingram Spark. And uh, they yeah, support local bookstores, which is obviously we all think is important. Libraries, again, very important for so many of us. So if you are only on KDP Print, you're going to miss out on this wide distribution. And I've also, since I've been with Ingram Spark, my books have appeared in bookstores, at literary festivals and in libraries in various countries around the world. Um, Ingram Spark also have a really useful blog and a podcast. For example, articles on how to self-publish a photo book or a hardback book. And you can do cool things like personalising a print run. You can have uh, a note to a book group or a school, for example, in the front. You can even now use their free ISBNs. They have free online courses. So it's your content. Do more with it with Ingram Spark. Just go over to ingramspark.com to check it out. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to new and returning patrons, Melissa Romo, Gigi Pandian, Insa Conradi and Guillaume. 
Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. And thanks for, especially in these difficult times. I mean, seriously, I really appreciate it. And uh, it demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month, which keeps me in black coffee. which is what I essentially live on uh, at the moment. Well, in, in general, I mean, I definitely one of those writer cliches now who lives on black coffee. And uh, you will get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which I'm going to do this week for patrons. And you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Alison Jones is the CEO of Practical Inspiration Publishing and the author of This Book Means Business, as well as the host of the Extraordinary Business Book Club podcast. Welcome back to the show, Alison. Hello, Joanna. It's nice to be back. Oh, yes. So uh, for those who haven't heard you before, tell us a bit about you and your background in publishing. So I'm a career publisher, I guess. I've been in publishing all my life. I'm straight out of university in traditional publishing. I was at uh, Chambers and then at Oxford University Press. And most recently at Macmillan, I was Director of Innovation Strategy until I left in 2014. Macmillan moved to London and I decided I didn't want to. (laughs) And also I decided that publishing was really broken. So I was going to jump ship because the whole paying for content thing was clearly just a disaster. And uh, yeah, I was going to start a completely new business as a business coach and facilitator and trainer and so on. And then everybody started asking me about publishing. So I came back full circle and now I am a publishing partner for businesses. Which is brilliant. And it's so interesting because you said that uh, publishing was broken. And did you say 2014 you started the business? That's right. Wow. And I met you around then, didn't I? I, I was going to say, so that, I think it was uh, the month after I uh, left Macmillan that I met you, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Oh, that's great. Because you've obviously done incredibly well working with business books specifically, which is a great niche. But I wanted to first ask you, as someone who has been a career publisher, as you mentioned, and that publishing being broken, I wonder if the last year we've seen this massive shift in business model, I think. Publishers have finally realised that online is the place to be, especially in a pandemic. So (laughs) what, (laughs) what have you seen change in publishing over the last year that may have taken may have should have taken a decade for them to figure out (laughs) yeah it's so funny isn't it I think across every industry what's happening is just this massive acceleration of stuff that was already happening there's the basic stuff like everywhere that suddenly oh it turns out people can work from home who knew so that's we can't unlearn that that's good and I think actually that will help with publishing called inclusion statistics, they're, they're trying really hard, but still it's a very London-based, low-paid thing. And one of the side effects of that is you tend to just end up with people with a private income doing those low-paid or unpaid internships, which makes it just as a really unrepresentative industry. But I think that now people are all over the place and, and working remotely. So I'm hoping that we will be able to get a more diverse publishing body, which will mean more diverse books, which is you know good for everybody. So that's one interesting thing. I think more broadly in the publishing uh, world, in the whole book industry, that the big story obviously has been the impact on bookshops, which is you know the life and blood of the book trade. So many independent booksellers closing down, you know, it's just awful. All these people who really, really deeply cared about books and, and curated their collections and had their relationships with their, with their buyers. A lot of them have been hugely creative and they've put an awful lot of stuff online and bookshop.org has helped. That's given a kind of lifeline to a lot of publish, uh, small bookshops as well. But an awful lot of them were operating on wafer thin margins and, and they 
they've just gone. Mm-hmm. And again, that was something that was happening. It's been accelerated. And it's, yeah, it is disheartening, really, that the big winner is, as always, Amazon, which is just not good for the wider book trading competition and just that sense of people who passionately care about books, which, frankly, Amazon doesn't particularly. Mm, but I guess... The answer, and some people, obviously I'm in Bath, we've got some great independent booksellers. You've got Toppings, haven't you? They're brilliant. Yeah, we've got Toppings and Mr. B's, which, uh, you know, won Bookseller of the Year and stuff. And obviously we've got Waterstones, which is still, I think, an independent store, is it? It's, uh, they're a chain, but... (laughs) Yes, they're a big chain. Obviously, uh, they're they're less independent than they used to be. (laughs) Yes, let's say that. But it's interesting because, and I try and spread my money around, but uh, Toppings has an event business model and now gone Zoom events. And uh, Mr. B's also has a micro publisher, which which is quite interesting. But I wonder, like, how much do you think publishers have discovered or invested more in print on demand over print runs? Because it seems to me that the traditional publishing normal route into bookstores is to do a big print run, put books out into stores, there are returns and etc. But the online selling business model, print on demand is much more efficient and cost effective. So do you think that has shifted? And certainly is that something that you focus on? It's definitely, it was, it's been part of the mix for a little while. I'd say again, it's accelerated and actually talking to people at Ingram, I, I know it's accelerated. I know people who hadn't really invested particularly in print on demand are now doing it because as you say, it's so much more flexible um, in terms of inventory, which was always the case. I don't quite know why it took so long, <laughs> but yeah, certainly we, we, I think we probably started off exclusively print on demand because of those barriers to entry, the warehousing and the rep team and all that kind of stuff. We've actually, we've gone the other way. We are swimming against the tide of history. And we now do initial print runs, which get warehoused and so on. And it's really to do with the traditional book trade, this, because they are wary about buying print-on-demand books because they can't return them so easily. And Mm. they don't, I guess there's still some sort of snobbery, the sense that is this actually, print-on-demand books ranges from completely unedited books that people are just putting out themselves to absolute top end traditionally published books as well. And it's very hard for a bookseller to to know. So they look at the supplier as a kind of proxy for quality. And if they are buying it from a warehouse through the reps that they know, there's a comfort level with that and an easiness of kind of, it's a shorthand for, yes, okay, this is a book that I can return if it doesn't sell and I know where it's from and there's some provenance there. So I think print on demand has suffered a little bit from the, the traditional book trade just not quite having the wherewithal to be able to grade <laughs> books mm. effectively, and I, I don't know if there is a really easy way around that, but it, it's certainly with a, the, the ecosystem hasn't quite caught up to, to enable that. So that's why we do traditional print runs, but we supplement that with print on demand, and that means we backfill the warehouse from that, so we never go out of print, we never miss a sale, and when you use the two together like that, it's really powerful. But yes, certainly the, that mix of print on demand along with traditional printing, or indeed instead of it, for for backlist and for some publishers, I think has accelerated. And then what about marketing? Because again, a lot of publishers focused on physical marketing in stores and book tours and things like that. Obviously, you've got your extraordinary business book club podcast, and you know about digital marketing, but do you think uh, marketing has also shifted in the last year? Definitely. And yes, it's, we were absolutely ahead of the curve here, obviously. <laughs> but no, it, and again, it was something that was already happening. Penguin actually have a really good kind of direct, tailored, customised newsletter to their people. More and more publishers were building out direct consumer. It, it took them a long time, but they they had understood that this was important. They were using influencers more. They were much more savvy about digital marketing. 
all of that has accelerated. And I think that's really helpful, actually, because having that direct relationship with your readers, we, in the old days, we never knew. The booksellers were our customers and we had no idea who was actually buying the books. I remember actually going out with the reps and talking to booksellers and, and seeing people in the shop. I actually started as a bookseller, so I had had more of an idea than most. But having the ability to get instant feedback from people, have, seeing what resonates when you run a campaign, that's, you know, that's gold. And then it's interesting, because did, did you go to the online future book? I didn't go to future book this year. No, I have in the past. Yes. No, yes, I did, we've I didn't seen go each other there. But yeah. I, I attended the online one. It was very interesting because a number of European publishers were talking about this direct to consumer model and saying that they are now doing that, actually selling books directly to customers through their email list and through portals on their website. And of course I do that. And it, it's something that can I can make 90% revenue on a book and sorry, 90% royalty percentage, which is just crazy. And it, it seemed to me that a lot of these uh, publishers were really starting to look at that. Mm. As you said, it, we need a wider ecosystem than just Amazon. We love Amazon, absolutely, but we would like a wide, <laughs> much bigger ecosystem, a healthier ecosystem. So do you think that uh, British publishers or, or any sort of publishers that you know more about here in the UK are more interested in the direct-to-consumer or do you think they are just not going to be able to go that far? Oh, no, I think most of them are and have been, as I say, for a while developing their D2C stuff. Pragmatically, one of the big reasons, so we sell our books off the Practical Inspiration site. We also now sell our eBooks directly off the Practical Inspiration mm. site uh, using Glassbox, which is um, a useful app that you can use. To, it's device agnostic because obviously eBooks are so closely linked to their purchasing ecosystem. Usually if you have a Kindle, you buy from Amazon. If you have a Nook, you buy from Barnes & Noble. This is an agnostic thing and it's another app to download. I'm not going to pretend it's perfect. But what Selling Direct allows us to do is to offer discounts so we can, our authors can give out, they can buy a, a bulk load of free codes if they want to. We found with the pandemic, a lot of the speaking engagements that our authors have done in the past, we would have done a direct bulk sale to an organisation. We couldn't do that because there's nobody there to receive it because mm. <laughs> everybody was watching from home. What they can do is send out bulk codes and then people can come to the site and redeem them and download the book themselves. So being able to sell directly allows you to do that in a way that you just can't do if you're not a retailer. So that in itself is a really practical reason for doing it because so, you can do promotions and codes and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I use Payhip with BookFunnel, which also distributes ebooks and audiobooks now to yeah. their app. It's so great to have these more and more tools coming out that are enabling it. And and I think I was talking with my husband about this the other day. It used to be that I just had a couple of apps that I would consume audio from, for example. And now I have about six apps on my phone that I consume audiobooks from. And that doesn't bother me. I think my own behavior has changed. I'm more flexible than I used to be. And I think that change in behavior is what we need, isn't it? So that people are used to and happy to buy from different sites like yours and mine rather than yeah. just Amazon. Yes, exactly. And it's funny, I have a, a very crude uh, theory here, which is that when we all got our smartphones, we went crazy with the apps. And then we got three screens of them and we went, oh, you know, this is oh, this is just not sustainable. Yes. Um, and then we discovered that you could put them into folders. And so there was a, 
it's like a U-shaped curve. We went, oh, okay. So now I have an audio folder and, you know, all my apps are in there. So suddenly we organized our stuff better and now we have more tolerance for more apps. That's my theory. Oh, that's funny. I don't actually use folders, but I have multiple screens. You scroll across your screen. But no, I agree with you. I think our behavior is starting to shift more. But anyway, let's get into the nonfiction stuff because you do this great proposal course and you also have your This Book Means Business, which is fantastic. Let's talk about nonfiction. What is an extraordinary nonfiction book? What makes a nonfiction book stand out rather than just another book on the same topic? Because we just see so many of those. I know. It's a real X factor question, isn't it? There are lots of perfectly competent singers out there, but what's the X factor? And it's obviously, if there was a recipe for this... (laughs) We'd be making millions. We'd all be rich. I know. But what I can tell you is what I look for in a book, which is something distinctive. And it could be the way they've framed it, a metaphor that they've used that you go, ah, I hadn't thought about it like that before. Or uh, a framework or something that really shows that they have not just they've got something to say about this, but they have structured it in a way that makes it easy for people to consume or they're helping you because there are no completely new ideas in the world. Maybe there are, but there's very few of them. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't buy another book on marketing. It just means that if you are going to buy another book on marketing, it's got to be doing something a bit different or helping you see something in a new way, or it's got to have, it's got to add to the conversation. And I always say to that when people are writing a book, quite often it's crippling this sense that you have to get everything in there and it has to be the last word on the subject. It's never going to be the last word on the subject. You're taking part in this conversation, but it has to be worth saying. And I think that getting that balance of being clear about what you're covering, having a really distinctive and original take on it. That's what I look for in a book. And it's interesting, you said you won't get everything in there, of course, you can't, uh, and it's very difficult. You want, you, want, you want to write a sort of magnum opus, but equally the the trend for shorter books yeah. that perhaps are an encapsulated idea that's not everything you need to know, but the, it's lots of smaller things. So how long should a nonfiction <laughs> book be these days? Shall I give you an exact figure and everybody yeah, can write it down? Yeah, exact figure. Or at least a, 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 couple, a, a ballpark. I'll give I you a ballpark. Not, yeah, yeah, give us a ballpark. So I reckon 35,000 words to around 55,000 words is the sweet spot. Mm. It, you go much below 35,000 words and you're going to find it hard to get a spine that is bulky enough to have a legible title on it. it that's a really crass reason, but actually... <laughs> You want to be able to see it on a shelf. You want to be able to read the title on the shelf. And it has to be at least 100 pages for that. And 100 pages looks a bit thin and spindly. Books, they have a kind of physical life. They have a a life as objects. There's a sort of reification of books. And it matters how a book feels in your hand. And I know it doesn't matter when you're buying online, but not everybody is buying online. And even when you get it, so you don't want somebody to be telling, oh, it's much smaller than I thought. So I think that there is a kind of, you can do things. You can have shorter books that have, that are more spacious in their page design, that have lots of illustrations and, and that will bolt them out. But for me, 35,000 words feels, this is something that couldn't be said in a blog post. Mm. And there are too many books out there that frankly should have been said in a blog post. And it was just the kind of one idea, which is interesting. But once you've read that, the next five chapters are basically rehashing that idea and that shouldn't be a book. But if you go much above 50, 55, maybe 60, a push thousand words, yeah. I remember talking to Bernadette Jiwa, who who writes very short, very beautiful books. And I asked her about why she did that. And she said she was she went to a bookshop to do a bit of some research, competition research. And she saw people looking at books, taking it down from the shelf and going, not got time for that and putting it back. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and whether you say it out loud or you just think it in your head, that's where we're going with this, isn't it? And I think you sh- if you have something to say, 
you have to put the time and the energy into saying it as concisely as possible because that's the value that you bring to your reader other than just waffling on for 80,000 words and making the point that you could have made in 50. Nobody's going to thank you for that. No, I totally agree. And it's interesting, a really famous author, Tony Robbins, he's got, he has done quite a few doorstop books, but he put out a book a few years back called Money Master the Game or something like that. And it really was a doorstop. And I'm a fan and I bought it and it's, it was hard work anyway. And then about 18 months later, he put out Unshakable, which is a, as you say, it's probably about 45,000 words. And it is all the best bits from that mega book <laughs> in a much smaller book. And I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly why he did this. Even with someone who is as famous as Tony Robbins, they clearly decided that really putting everything on this topic in one big book was useless. So I yes. agree with you about around that. That um, I think actually it's interesting. You watch really, really big famous authors and you watch you can see it in the Harry Potter series. The first one was really well edited. It gets book four, it's just too long. It's too long. Oh, <laughs> and yeah, let's mention Dan balance. Brown as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And do they get to that point where the, the editor doesn't quite dare to rein them yeah, back touch in? It. And, yeah. yeah, and and it's it's a it's a mistake. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Into talking about a proposal. So, if a nonfiction author wants a publishing deal, why should they write a proposal and not a whole book? Right. This is the big difference between fiction and nonfiction. And it always boggles me that with fiction, you have to write the whole thing before you start punting it around. How does that work? So, I've been a nonfiction girl all my life. Nonfiction. It's about the the concept. And the distinctiveness, as I was saying before, it's also about the credibility. So it's very much about, are you the right person to to talk about this? Why should we believe you? Why should we listen to you? And publishers tend to have more of a commissioning strategy with their nonfiction. I'm saying that and I'm like, actually, I don't know much about fiction publishing. So maybe that's, but certainly nonfiction publishers, they will have a sense of where the list is going and what they want to focus on. And they'll have a subject editor who will have a really strong vision for that list. If you pitch a proposal to a particular commissioning editor at a nonfiction publishing house, there's two dialogues going on. One is their engagement with the proposal that they're reading in front of them. And is this good? Is it, Does it stack up? Is it credible? Is it clear? The other one is how does this fit? with where we're going with this list. And it's very rarely a perfect fit. More often there will be, this is really interesting, but what I'd really like to do is focus a bit more on this or bring in a bit more of the intersectionality with this discipline or whatever. And that's the conversation that you have with a nonfiction editor. They will want to work with you to shape that book to be something that they can do really well with, and which will fit their commissioning maybe steer it slightly away from a book that they published very recently that's on similar ground, maybe bring in something that they're really keen to focus on. And whether you like that or not is entirely up to you. So this is a conversation. You might say, actually, that's not my vision for the book. So no, but it's much more about a conversation of how can we work together to make a book that's going to work for you as the author, but also going to work for us as a publisher. And it's much, I think nonfiction authors tend to be a bit less I was going to say precious. I don't mean to be at all <laughs> offensive, but it's not your kind of creative soul necessarily. It's got, of course, it's creative, but it isn't your artistic vision. It's much more you use nonfiction books as much as read them, and it's got to work for the reader. So the the editor has the expertise in that area, and it's one of the reasons I love being a nonfiction editor. Actually, is that you bring your professional expertise and your ambassadorship for the reader into that equation, and that's why we do it. Because very often they will say yes, but. And you'll write a very slightly different book to the one that you perhaps originally envisaged. And is that why pitching the most appropriate publisher or agent is the 
is a really important thing because obviously you have to know what the taste or what the direction of that publisher or agent is. Yeah, you can't always know what their future direction is, of course, unless you have some sort of in at the company. But you can certainly look at what they're putting out at the moment. I wouldn't go too much of anything that was published four or five years ago, because it may well be a different commissioning editor with very different views now. But you can certainly look at what they're putting out, what their forward list is like, where they're pricing things, who they're aiming them at, because having a really clear target market is so important for so many nonfiction books. You want to be really clear on who you're writing for and what problem you're solving for them. And with the proposal is what I have heard is that you don't necessarily need an agent with non-fiction proposals. There are micro publishers and imprints that take pitches directly from authors. What's your thought on agents? No, absolutely. Yes. And again, it's one of the the great things about being a commissioning editor is that you don't always rely on on an agent as they do. So the the big five, you know, Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, that you are going to have to go through an agent, fiction or nonfiction. There's no two ways about that. But it's not even micro-publishing houses. People like Bloomsbury, Kogan Page, Sage, Palgrave, Routledge, all of these will take proposals directly in their field and the commissioning editor details are up there on the site so you can find them they don't hide them away and that's I think great because Mm. you can have that kind of conversation directly and you don't need an agent for that now that clearly I'm working from business books professional books perspective keep that in mind if you're writing a trade biography might be different you might be having to go through an agent for that but also independent publishers are so they're thriving that there's a bit of a gap in the middle actually the kind of the the middle-sized publishers are increasingly getting acquired by the big publishers who are desperate to to scale up and get as many economies of scale as they can but coming up at the other end there are so many niche publishers or publishers with a real passion for a particular market or topic or way of looking at the world and it's really worthwhile researching those because you, you can have a conversation directly with them. And would you say that the financial terms are also different with non-fiction in that there's a lot more, obviously you don't need to get into details, but a lot of people have this vision of a sort of multi-six-figure deal or whatever. Is the non-fiction space smaller because the niche books are smaller in general? I'd say there's very few, certainly in the, more, in the professional space, you, you don't get much by way of advance. There are big non-fiction books that get advances, but they, they're big trade books. So they tend to be with the big trade houses. I, one of the reasons that I went into the business publishing space is that for people writing business books, honestly, the return on investment isn't the book. Um, it's the business. And mm. using a book as part of your bigger piece. So you have an online presence, you have your book, you have the products and services that you offer. Just makes so much sense. Books are such low price, low margin items that it is punishingly hard to make a good return on them. And I mean that for publishers as well as authors. I know that there's publishers take a lot of flack for their terms to authors, but I can tell you that there are very few publishers outside the academic journal space making real serious money. <laughs> it's a real, it's, there's a good reason they used to have a private income to do this. It's not a high margin business. So yes, I'd say with, with nonfiction, certainly the kind of nonfiction I've worked with, which you know, verging on scholarly, but also professional, that, that kind of purposeful business-like kind of nonfiction, it's less risky than fiction because you can quantify the audience quite well and and you can get a you know fairly you can predict fairly accurately as a commissioning editor roughly how many copies of this book you're going to sell but there's very little upside as well so trade fiction much more potential for massive hits 
much more risk of completely losing your shirt. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. And I think that obviously with my own sales, I pretty much how many nonfiction books I can sell every month based on the certain number of people who always buy this type of books. Obviously, this audience are authors and people go in and out of their interest uh, clearly but uh, you know if you look at even google search results there's usually a pretty same number of people are searching every month for the same type of thing you mentioned marketing books i'm one of those people i'm going to buy a marketing the, the latest marketing book by seth godin or whatever or something that i notice that's interesting and so i and i see the non-fiction for me personally as as an author is something that is pretty stable whereas mm. the fiction goes up and down depending on uh, right now as we're recording this in the pandemic and lockdown three and Bridgerton hit over Christmas. And suddenly, if you write Regency romance, your books are probably selling pretty well off the back of Bridgerton. But who knows if before that, it's a great genre anyway, but that has certainly picked it up. Whereas I feel like the, some of the darker books like that I write, people would rather have a feel good Regency romance at the moment. The fiction does really go up and down, whereas nonfiction is, seems to be a lot more stable. It is. Yeah. And I mean, you might say that's, well, how dull is that? But <laughs> when you're trying to build a business on it, it's quite, it's it's quite handy. Dull. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So um, if we're going to do a proposal, what are some of the important elements that go into that? So <laughs> this is a non-fiction proposal I'm talking about because yes. I am not qualified to talk about a fiction proposal. <laughs> With a non-fiction proposal, there's nothing inessential in there. It is, it is, what they need to know distilled down to the purest form. So you know, there's not much fat to cut. But I would say, and you can get, that's the other great thing. You go to the, the publishers that I just mentioned and you can download a submission form. You can see exactly what they need. And I would really encourage you not to send a kind of vanilla proposal out to everybody, but actually really go and have a look. How do they ask you to present it? And because you know, that will reflect how they how their internal systems work. And, mm. you know, if you haven't, if you couldn't be bothered to do that, then, you know, you're, you're less of an attractive person to work with, frankly. So you can, there's no mystery here. You can go and look at the, the proposals are all fairly standard. And the big things that I would say are really focus on your target reader. That's where we start with the 10 day business book proposal challenge. Who is this for? And don't tell me it's the general reader and don't tell me it's anybody with interest in self-development. No, who really is it for? You know, who's actually going to buy this book? And it might not be a demographic. I always think if, if you say, oh, it's for women between 25 and 35, I'm like, well, it might be, but it's there's very few books that really are specifically focused at women in that age group. It's probably less about gender and age than it is about a, a psychographic. What is the problem that they're facing, the, the need that they have, or the, the itch that they want to scratch? And that doesn't necessarily conform to a demographic, but it might. So it might be more to do with a career transition, or it might be more to do with a, a leader who wants to understand technology more, or a small business person who wants to recruit their first employee. If you've got something like that, that's great, because it's really straightforward to design a marketing campaign around that. If it is more broad, then you've just got to think, well, actually, who, if I'm talking about a more general self-development book, what kind of person is going to be attracted to the approach that I am taking? If it's a kind of more holistic approach or is a yoga, just really think about who it is and show that you have done the research, that these people exist, but not only that they exist in sufficient quantities to purchase your book. So like a persona is no good here. Mm. One person who will buy your book, that ain't going to make it financially viable. So a persona is fabulous for you as you write, but do not put it in your target market. You've got to show that there is a big enough group of people who will likely to buy this book to make it worthwhile. And then show that not only they have that need, but that they know they have that need. Because if you know that 
they need this, but they don't. They aren't going to buy the book. That's yeah. really important. And obviously the overview, the summary, they are really key because that's where you set out what's distinctive about your book. I'd say spend a lot of time on that. I guess the other really important one is the marketing plan. And I wish I could say to you that if you write a really good book, it will be a sort of word of mouth sensation. But frankly, if it was a choice between a brilliant book and a really rubbish marketing campaign or a mediocre book and a fabulous marketing campaign, the second one is going to win out every time. You can't have a rubbish book with a brilliant marketing campaign because people will see through that very quickly. But if it's just been mediocre, then it's the marketing that's going to do it. So demonstrating that you can reach people that you have already gained a following because there's so many tools out there for you to gain a following. Why haven't you done it yet? The book can't just do it all for you. And that you have really clear sense of how you're going to promote it, the connections, the network that you have, the events you're going to speak at, all that kind of stuff. So they're all important, but those are the ones that I would particularly highlight. I know people are going, oh no, that sounds like loads of work. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm so sorry. What do I say? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But on on that, obviously a lot, uh, my listeners are indie, but they're also traditionally published. And a lot of authors now obviously goes hybrid route and do a bit of both. But what are the benefits of working with a publisher for nonfiction if you have to do the marketing plan yourself, if you have to figure out the target market yourself? And I didn't quite say that. What I said was that this is the proposal (laughs) and Mm. I think even if you are planning to publish yourself you should do a proposal you should do that thinking and you should you basically you're pitching this if you're doing if you are submitting it you're pitching it to a publisher as a business as an investment and you're saying I am a good risk a good bet for you to risk on but actually your time your energy your resources you have to decide Similarly, is this a good use of my scarce resources? So doing that thinking in the book proposal will pay hugely when it comes to marketing the book, because you will have had to do that thinking about why would somebody buy this book rather than the four most closely competing titles and how am I going to promote it? And if you've done that thinking up front, it's going to really help you with your self-publishing. But in terms of why you would want to go with a publisher or indeed a publishing partner, more like practical inspiration, it's about expertise, obviously, and working with an editor and all that kind of good stuff. But it's also about still the traditional book supply chain. It is really hard to get your book into traditional bookshops as an independently published author. And Amazon is great, but Amazon isn't the whole story and certainly not globally. Getting that kind of distribution. Also, just there's something about having a community of authors that I've spent a lot of time building up the Practical Inspiration author community and the learning that we do within that. So it just makes it a bit less lonely, I think. And having that accountability can be really helpful as well. Mm. I, I found writing my own book because I was my own publisher. I was terrible as an author because <laughs> I didn't take myself seriously when I gave myself a deadline. <laughs> but I know that many of my authors say, if I hadn't been working, if you hadn't given me the, we're publishing here, which means we need the, draft, the beta manuscript here for the development editor, and then we'll need the final manuscript here. And this is when we need the illustrations. And it's just about managing that process, which is really helpful. And I would say even you, you said you were terrible as an author, but you're certainly not a terrible author. This book means <laughs> business is an excellent book. <laughs> Just so Thank everyone you. knows. <laughs> it's really useful and I highly recommend it for people to understand this process. And I always think, wow, you're fantastic at, at helping people through this process. So you're right. Having someone to like project manage and, and deal with all that stuff is a big reason why a lot of especially successful business people want a partner because they don't want to do it themselves. It's like a big 
part of it. But also, is it still, do you think, that in the speaking circuit, the, the big money speaking circuit, that having a publisher imprint like a Kogan page or whatever, a Wiley on your spine is actually makes a difference in the speaker circuit? Because I know a lot of your authors also speak. So do, do you think having your brand on the spine makes a difference? Or is that something that is from years ago now? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think certainly for academic books, so for getting books onto courses, it's definitely easy to get adoptions if the lecturer knows the brand and trusts the brand as an academic publisher. But most authors probably don't care about that. I think it's much less of an issue for the speaker circuit, honestly. I think what matters is if it's professionally produced, because it's that tangible thing that that embodies the intangible, isn't it? And if it looks shoddy, if it's full of typos if the page design looks as though it was set in word that it just doesn't give the impression that they want their brand associated with so I think it's got to look professionally done and I think that's the big difference these days books that are professionally published or not professionally published rather than traditionally published or self-published but I would say actually quite a lot of our authors have come from traditional publishing backgrounds and just want more control they want to be able to buy books at you know a fairer rate or fairer at, at a you know a more um, reasonable rate thank you <laughs> um, because actually that's that's how they're using it in the business they also want more control over their intellectual property because the intellectual property exists beyond the book um, and publishers of course are entirely invested in the book and they make their money from the sale of the book whereas the people who are writing the book that I'm working with the business owners the book is just one part of something bigger so they the people who've come from traditional publishers to work with me have done so because they were frustrated by the lack of control the lack of ability to use their own intellectual property the author discount that meant that actually they were paying much more than they paid to work with me to buy back enough copies of the book to use in the business there are more options today than there ever used to be and that's a great thing and I'm not going to say that one of them is better than another it's just about, you know, how do you want to use this book what do you want it to do for you and, and think about your options that way that is a great point if you're whoever you're going to sign a contract with you have to have some control over the content of that intellectual property as you say what if you want to do a course on it what if you want to do um, make videos what if you want to give stuff away for free all of that can be impacted right. by a contract so that is really important now just final question you and I have seen each other at many conferences and we last saw each other at Frankfurt Book Fair way too long ago now I I wish I miss it me too I hope we can go this year 2021 I'm definitely going if we can (laughs) and you were there in your booth when I saw you and you had the books there that looked amazing on the shelf and you were pitching for your authors to license into foreign rights in different territories so I'm and and I license my books in different territories and languages and so do many people listening but it's really interesting what do you think are the like what makes a book more likely to be picked up for licensing how do you know what's worth pitching and what you go yep that one's going to do well (laughs) yeah so it's a combination of things length which is another good reason to write short because translators are expensive and they'd much rather translate 50,000 words than 80,000 words so that's another good reason to keep them short topic obviously whether it's got attraction in a particular country. So anything that's too UK specific, legal text, for example, you're probably not going to get much in the way of translation stuff on that because it's just not relevant for other territories. The big thing is the author's international connections. And on our author form, there's a bit for international connections. And I'm always saying to it, I don't care how tenuous it is. If you've got a connection with a non-English speaking territory, you put it down there. Because if you can show that author has spoken, has worked with a client in a particular country, what you're doing effectively is showing that there is an interest 
in that topic in that country and that person is known and respected. So we make a lot of our authors, and again, it comes back to that credibility piece, building relationships, building your platform, all the stuff. Actually, one thing, if, if you're thinking, oh my goodness, I can't do that marketing plan because I haven't got this stuff, writing your book is such a great time for you to start all this stuff because you're doing something really interesting and creative in the space. It's a great time to reach out to people. It's a great time to plan your content marketing campaign around your book. So, you know, bear that in mind as well. Think beyond English language speaking and see where you can get engagement in overseas territories. And, and if that's where your business is going particularly, because that's what makes the difference is having those connections. Interesting. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your books and your podcast online? They can find me at alisonjones.com and there's links to most stuff there. You can find the books that we publish, practicalinspiration.com, and you can find the podcast and links to the community. We've also got a Facebook group at extraordinarybusinessbooks.com. And you've got a book proposal challenge, haven't you? I do. Yeah, I run it about three times a year the 10 day business book proposal challenge, which is exactly what it says in the tin. We just take 10 days and we go through every field of a proposal template. And I, I explain, you know, what's the publisher looking for here? What do you think about? And you can you, you submit your, your first draft and I go, yeah, but you need to do more of this and, and shape it. And how about if you did that? And by the end of it, it's lovely. Actually, I've just finished one and I just, I put the shameless begging thread up to get some endorsements. This has changed my life. <laughs> and that's quite nice, isn't it? 10 days to change somebody's life is quite good. An awful lot of books have come out of that and gone on to publish in every way, actually, traditionally with Practical Inspiration as a partner and self-published. And quite a lot of them have gone on to win awards which is pleasing that is excellent every year like every time I speak to you or every time I see you I'm like I'm, I'm gonna do it this year because <laughs> I've got this idea and I know that working with you will make it better and once again I'm sitting here going so I've got these like three ideas I'm like I'm gonna do this challenge I'm gonna <laughs> so one day you'll see me on that <laughs> That would be so cool. That'd be great. I'm going to have you do a Facebook Live if you do. I'm just warning you. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Alison. That was great. Good to talk to you, Joanna. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Alison. It's always interesting to hear from publishing professionals about what works, what's changing. And I'm definitely planning on doing something like a proposal for my next nonfiction book which will possibly not be for authors, which is kind of scary. (laughs) So next week, I'm talking to Sarah Rosette about how to structure and write a series, which is definitely one of the most important aspects of writing if you want to make a living, regardless of genre. A tentpole series can pay the bills over time, as we talked about with the backlist. And we talk about tips, whether you are a plotter or a pantser. And uh, it is relevant for nonfiction. Obviously, I have a series for authors in nonfiction as well. So that is coming up next week. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.